God comes to us. That's the incarnation. God became one of us. He pursued us. Jesus is always pursuing us to be present in our lives, no matter what storm we may face. What can we learn from Jesus's life that will help us overcome fear? Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Today, we continue our study of the Gospel of John. If you've missed some of David's teachings in this series, all of them are available on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. But now, here's part one of a message called, Jesus Calms the Storm. Well, let's look at these verses, John the sixth chapter, verses 15 through 22, and see what the Lord wants to say to our hearts today in these words. Now, let me use this as the introduction. Um, there are only two stories in the Bible that are in all four of the Gospels. The first one is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the resurrection Easter narrative. Uh, the second one is the feeding of the 5,000, which was last week's message. It's in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Another interesting aspect of today's verses is it's in three of the Gospels. Uh, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in John. Now, people ask the question, why in the world are these stories told so often in the different Gospels? Well, you have four eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. There's Matthew, one of Jesus' followers. You have Mark, who's telling the story of Peter. Peter's probably actually giving him his words as he writes them down. And Peter, of course, is one of Jesus' followers. Third, there's Luke, who was a physician, but he walked with Paul, whom Jesus appeared to and called as one of his followers. And fourth, the Gospel of John that we're studying right now. And John was Jesus' closest and most intimate friend. So you have in John some really unique aspects of Jesus' life. Well, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. That's because 65% of what is told in the Gospels are all shared in the same three accounts. So it looks like they drew upon each other's messages as they told the story of Jesus. The unique Gospel is the Gospel of John. 90% of what's in John is unique to John. It, it was the last gospel, we think, as scholars. So it's like John had before him Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he saw all the similar stories that were there. And he said, I don't need to tell them. But he did give spiritual insights about Jesus' life and ministry that aren't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when you read all four of the gospel accounts, you get insights into different stories that are absolutely fascinating. And in other words, let me say it this way. When you read the stories, don't think they contradict one another. They don't. They collaborate one another. They complement one another. So you have four different eyewitnesses telling you about a story and each eyewitness gives an account, just like if you had an eyewitness looking at an accident would tell what he saw. Then you'd have another eyewitness share what she saw and together the police put together what actually happened. Well, you have that today with the story of Jesus walking on the water. Three different places mentioned in the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and John, each one giving you a bigger, fuller, 
picture of what actually happened. So let's begin with John's gospel and see how John tells the story of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, let's go back and recover verse 15. After Jesus fed the 5,000 men, which was 15 to 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two pickled sardine fish, uh, we see the people getting all excited about it. In verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, so the people like the idea of Jesus healing them. They like the idea of Jesus feeding them. So they wanted to make him a king. Jesus did not come the first time here on earth to be an earthly king, to just take care of us like a big government. He came to be a spiritual king, a king over our hearts, an inside out king, if you will. And when he saw them trying to force him to become an earthly king, he went away again to pray, to be alone. He withdrew from all of the masses. Then comes the story of him walking on the water. When evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Uh, so they get into the boat. It's rather late in the evening and they start to go toward Capernaum on the other side of the sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Tiberias is about four miles wide and seven miles long. And so they've got to take about a four mile trek across the Sea of Galilee to get to Capernaum. That is their destination. Now remember that Peter, James and John were fishermen and they probably had a boat that allowed Jesus and the other disciples to travel across the lake. Interestingly, there have been archeological discoveries of boats during this era and they were generally around 26 feet long and seven feet wide more than adequate to hold Jesus' 12 disciples. So the 12 disciples get into the boat and start crossing the sea toward Capernaum. It was now dark. So we, we remember last week that as the day went into the evening, Jesus knew people were hungry, so he fed them. It's now dark as they are crossing the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now this was something that happened on a regular basis during this time on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it happens on a regular basis even today. These kind of storms come out of nowhere and they cause swells of waves around seven to 10 feet high. They come aggressively. They come suddenly upon boatsmen who are out there. And you can well imagine that if they had it during that day, they would put out a small boat advisory telling fishermen and other people in boats not to go out during this time period because a storm is coming. And this one came suddenly upon them with a strong wind and was blowing furiously against them. Now, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they were almost across the Sea of Galilee, uh, three to four miles across, and they were just about there, and they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, why were they frightened? You'll see as we read a complimentary text why they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Uh, that's another way of saying I am who I am. It, it's a claim to deity. It's a claim to be God. He's saying, it is I. And he's also coming to them. Please note that. 
that whenever we're in trouble, whenever we're engulfed in fear, God comes to us. That's the incarnation. God became one of us. He pursued us. Jesus is always pursuing us to be present in our lives, no matter what storm we may face. So he is coming toward them. They are frightened. He says, it is I do not be afraid. That's a command. There seems to be a suggestion here that people can choose not to be afraid. Um, I know in the book I recently wrote called Moving Beyond Anxiety, it is my belief that a large amount of our fear, not all of it, some of it could be physical, could be genetic, could be some other things, but a large part of our fear seems to be things that we feed our minds with. And if you continue to feed your mind with frightened thoughts, with horrible thoughts, with thoughts of horror, with all kinds of fear, that is eventually what will happen with your emotions. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. So Jesus enters the boat, he gives them his presence, which is one of the major antidotes to fear, believing that Jesus is in our boats with us as we go through our life's storms. So that's all that John's gospel gives us. So do we have the opportunity to learn more from other gospel accounts? And indeed we do. If we go to Mark's gospel, we see in Mark chapter six, verses 45 through 52, this part of the story of Jesus walking on the water. Now, immediately, and that is immediately right after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat. Get in the boat, guys, and go before him to the other side. Now, let's pause for a second here, because this obviously says that Jesus forced his disciples to get in the boat that after the people wanted to make him king, before he retreated for a time in the mountains of personal quiet and prayer, he went down to the boat at the Sea of Galilee and he said, Peter, get in. Uh, Andrew, get in. Philip, get in. John, pushed him in, get into the boat. He forced them, he made them get in the boat. Now, here's what you need to know. Jesus, as the sovereign Lord of the universe, knew the storm was going to come. He knew everything. And so he forced his disciples to get into the boat and then he pushed the boat out into the sea to leave them to themselves. And so they got into the boat and Go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. Now that's interesting. We'll come back to that later on. In John's gospel, we have the journey being to Capernaum, this now being to Bethsaida. So while he dismissed the crowd, verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So he pushed the disciples boat into the water. He bid them farewell. And then he went up the mountain for his personal time with God to pray again. Everyone, listen, Jesus often withdrew to pray. He often took times alone. He often went away from the crowds in order to spend time in prayer. Bottom line, again, if you don't take a break, you'll break. You need to take time away. And, and one of our dreams for here at Hope Farm is 
you will be able to come here on regular occasions and let us know you're on the property and just spend a day here, spend a couple of days maybe, just resting and praying and being with God. There's nothing like nature, like green grass and still waters, like all that surrounds me here this day to restore your soul. Jesus knew that. He knew that if he didn't come apart, he'd come apart. So he took times regularly to get away and pray after he fed the 5,000, after he pushed his disciples' boat into the water, knew a storm was coming, he went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. Jesus is on a mountain, alone on the land. They're in the boat. And folks, here's what he's doing. He's watching what's happening. He's seeing everything that's going on. And I think he's praying for his disciples. In Hebrews 7, verse 20, it says that Jesus is regularly making intercession for his people. Now think about that. On those days when you're feeling fearful and you're wondering if God really cares, I want you to imagine the Lord of the universe in heaven right now on his holy mount, looking down and seeing you in your storms in life and saying that he cares, pleading to the Father to give you strength to be able to move through this particular storm. I think that's powerful to think about. And he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So they were trying to row for three to four hours, almost on the other side, while it's perfectly dark and it is painful, their muscles probably aching from the rowing. The wind is constantly, incessantly contrary to them. The waves are seven to 10 feet high and they are having a problem getting to the other side. And look at the next words. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. This is another insight that Mark gives us that John didn't give us. What's the fourth watch? That was the Roman watch from three to 6 a.m. in the morning. They had been rowing, folks, for nine hours, painfully, contrarily to the wind. And it was now between three and six o'clock in the morning after nine long hours of rowing. And that is when Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. And some people have asked through the ages, that seems odd. Why did he want to pass them by? He's trying to build their faith. He, he's trying to get them to see that it's him walking on the water. He wants them to see that it's God. And the first step before getting in the boat with them is to walk by them so that they can say, that's Jesus. He's coming to us. He's only passing by now, but soon he'll get in the boat with me. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Now, during that time, uh, people who didn't have a great deal of faith, believed in ghosts and demons, and they actually believed in a sea demon during that day, a sea demon who would be a part of these storms that would come up from nowhere on the Sea of Galilee. So some of these disciples still growing in their faith, not having it perfectly mature yet, saw Jesus walking on the water, um, a ghost, the word in the Greek is phantasma, uh, kind of like a, a white figure walking on top of the water. And they concluded that it was a sea demon, a ghost from maybe hell itself that caused their fear to increase. And they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. 
it is I, do not be afraid. Now in John's gospel, all we have is it is I, don't be afraid. But here we have Mark adding to that, take heart. Folks, we use the word heart a lot, don't we? Uh, the heart of the matter. Um, that's a heartfelt feeling. My heart belongs to you. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says the heart is the wellspring of all life. You must guard your heart. Take care of your heart. So when Jesus here says take heart, what he's really saying is let your heart's oversight of your life increase. Another way of saying the same thing is he says take courage. Be courageous people. We have never seen in our Christian lives in America, in my opinion, a greater need for those of us who follow Jesus to have courage, to believe that he is God, it is I, and also not to be afraid. But that take courage is one of the ways you overcome fear. You believe the God of the universe is stronger than anything you can face. He gives you the courage to face any storm in life that may come your way. Jesus includes here, take courage along with, it is I and don't be afraid. And then verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. See, he first came to them from the mountain, walked on the water, seemed to pass them by, their faith increased. Then he got in the boat with them, his presence with them saying, you don't need to be afraid. And the moment he got in the boat, the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So through Peter, Mark makes it clear here that there was a process that they needed to go through in order for their faith to grow. What had happened here was their hearts were hardened to faith. They had forgotten in just a few hours the feeding of the 5,000 men, the feeding of the 15 to 20,000 people. So. Mark's trying to make a point here is if you want to have the kind of faith that can address the storms in your life, you need to recognize that there will be times when your heart seems hardened and you forget the miracles that God has done in the past. Mark's trying to make the point here. Remember those miracles. Jesus wants us to remember what he's done in the past because here's the truth. If he's done it in the past, he can do it again. He can do it again. So remember those times when Jesus came through for you, when there was a feeding of the 5,000 men. They had forgotten it already in just a few hours, and that's why their hearts had become hardened. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a conversation about making decisions that will be beneficial to future generations. You don't want to miss this. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp, holding a sign that said, hungry, will work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, 
high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jen. It's great being with you as well. Well, in this morning's e-devotion, you gave some really good sound advice, and you said, make decisions that you know will benefit future generations. It sounds like there's a lot to unpack here. Well, it's a very important principle for all of us who are aging a bit and know our time on this earth is drawing to an eye, and we need to have a place where we go constantly to remind ourselves in prayer that we live not only for ourselves, we live for future generations. Mm -hmm. And this has a lot of implications for spiritually passing on the baton to those who are coming behind us. You know, I have children and grandchildren now, and I think a lot about what's this world going to be like for them. So I want to make decisions that help them be able to prosper in every possible way. And the Bible teaches this continually that we live from generation to generation to generation. I love the whole idea. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's this amazing phrase that the sins of the father are passed on to the third and fourth generation. And that's true in a practical way because back then they would have four generations living under the same roof. And if great-grand dad was behaving abysmally, he could affect the great-grandchildren who watched him behave that way. But I do think there's something genetic that we pass on uh, when we are spiritually disobedient to the Lord, and we need to be very careful about that. But the other side is true as well. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, but for those who are faithful, for those who love God and obey what he tells us to do, grace upon grace is passed on to the thousandth generation. Mm. So sin is only passed on to the third and fourth generation. We can break that curse and we can pass on to the thousandth generation the grace and goodness of God. So for all of our listeners today, realize the power of Jesus to change your heart, the power of Jesus to change your entire genetic makeup, Mm. the ability of Jesus to affect your next generation and generations to come. So our choices not only implicate ourselves for today, our choices implicate future generations. And that's the point I'm trying to get across. Make wise decisions, especially in the area of grace and following Jesus that will affect your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. I love this so much. One of my favorite things as a child is when I couldn't fall asleep and I'd call my dad in and he'd lay on the floor next to my bed and I'd say, please just tell me some stories from when you were a child Uh. and just passing down the stories. But taking that to the spiritual sense, something that Marilyn does is is keep these stories and these treasures in in an Ebenezer box. Yeah, that's my wife, Marilyn, in case anybody doesn't know. And we have now been married 43 years. Can you believe that, Jen? Happy anniversary. That's something else you pass on to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, that legacy of what marriage looks like. But Marilyn actually has what she calls an Ebenezer 
Ebenezer box. The Ebenezer was a stone that the Israelites built as a monument to remember a great victory that God had given them. She actually puts in memories uh, that mm-hmm. she passes on to our children and our grand- grandchildren of uh, memories, how God has been faithful to our family that future generations can read, and it'll increase their faith. I agree. I oftentimes have to remind myself of my own personal testimony of when God has been faithful to me in the past in order to go through something right now in the present. Yeah, so and there's, powerful. there's that great truth if he was faithful once. He'll be faithful again. Mm. And that's what we're trying to get across today, everybody. And if you'd like to receive these daily Moments of Hope from me, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. They'll arrive every morning in your inbox at 7 a.m. It's a way of starting your day with a great, wonderful, magnificent moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our Sunday morning worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock, in person or by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. While you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. Also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking that you pray for the students as they head into summer.